Today's episode is sponsored by NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. NerdWallet's financial journalists use fact-based reporting for some much-needed clarity in the finance world, helping you make smarter decisions with your money. Get smarter about things like saving on travel, because spending less on airfare means more money for an extra night and maybe a fancier dinner, too. Boosting your credit score, since good credit is like a real-life cheat code. And saving for an emergency fund, because life is like a good movie. It loves a good plot twist. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast on your favorite podcast app. Future you will thank you. The Peter Schiff Show. Well, on Friday, Donald Trump said that he would be unveiling on Wednesday of next week a massive tax cut. In fact, he actually went out on a limb and stated that it's going to be the biggest tax cut ever. Now, I'm really not sure why Donald Trump feels that he has to keep promising something and then failing to deliver. I mean, that's been a problem. You don't want to overpromise and underdeliver. I mean, I understand as a candidate you want to do that. You want to promise anything to get elected. But somebody ought to tell Donald Trump that the election's over and he won, right? He's president and he doesn't have to come out and say things, what I would think Trump should be doing is saying nothing about tax reform until he actually releases a plan, right? That way he can come up and he can uh, over-deliver. Don't promise anything. I'm working on it. And then, then, you know, don't put up a deadline Wednesday. And then what if it doesn't happen? What if, you know, what if there is no tax cut on Wednesday? Or what if it's not the biggest tax cut ever? Why make those promises? Now, maybe maybe he's going to release this massive tax cut on Wednesday, and maybe it will be the biggest ever. So, you know, I'm not going to say or take credit away from the president. I'm just saying, you know what? Why not just wait till Wednesday, just in case something goes wrong, right? And now you don't release it on Wednesday. Why raise everybody's hopes up if you're ultimately not going to meet the expectations? I mean, if there's going to be a great tax cut on Wednesday, the public can wait until Wednesday to find out about it, right? I mean, maybe this time there actually is a wolf. But the problem is, if you cry wolf too often, then eventually no one's going to believe you. So there's really no reason to go out and and make the promise. Just deliver uh, the massive tax cut on Wednesday and everything will be fine. But I guess he can't resist, you know, jumping the gun on these tax cuts. But, you know, the crazy part about this, first of all, how is it going to be the biggest tax cut ever? I mean, it's hard to believe that when we have the most debt ever, right, we have this enormous $20 trillion national debt that the president understands. You know, he pointed out how big the debt was when he campaigned. So the government already runs huge annual budget deficits. How can we afford the biggest tax cut ever unless we're also going to talk about the biggest government spending cut ever? But nobody is talking about cutting government spending. They're talking about increasing government spending. So if we're broke, how are we going to afford the biggest tax cut ever, especially for the middle class? Because, of course, that is where the government gets uh, the most, you know, of the lion's share of its money, right? The middle class. I mean, disproportionately, the rich pays a much higher percentage of the tax than, you know, than their you know, percentage of the population or even their percentage of national income, but still the lion's share of the revenue comes from the middle class. And so if this is going to be the biggest tax cut ever and meaning for the middle class, uh, how is it possible that we can afford it? I mean, I think one way they may be able to get the tax cut through is not cutting the top rate, right? The top rate right now 
is 39.6, right? I mean, it might as well be 40, but, you know, they tried to fool us, and, oh, it's 39.6, right? It's not 40%. Although when you add the Obamacare 3.8% tax, uh, then you're talking about almost 43.5% anyway. So we're over 40% when you look at the true uh, federal tax. But let's assume that they don't cut the top rate at all, right? Because the president keeps saying, I'm promising to cut taxes for the middle class and for business. And so if he leaves the top tax rate alone, he's just cutting taxes for the middle class and he's not further increasing the deficit by giving a tax cut to the to the top end. Because, you know, when Reagan first cut taxes, the top rate was 70 percent and he took it down to 50 initially. And so that was almost a 30 percent decline. And so in order to match that, if we were going to have, you know, the biggest tax cut ever for the marginal rate, you know, we'd have to bring the marginal rate now down from, you know, the 39.6 down to like 24. And I really don't see uh, how we're going to be able to do that in the context of blowing up the deficit. And now the Democrats are saying we're blowing up the deficit to give a tax cut uh, to the rich. I think it'll be much more palatable uh, to the left if he has to form a coalition with the left, because there's a lot of conservatives that aren't going to want to increase the deficit, that are going to want spending cuts. So if he wants to get the Democrats on board, a tax cut that only delivers benefits to the middle class will be very appealing uh, to a lot of people on the left. Now, what Trump could do for business is he could cut the corporate tax rate. Because remember, the corporate tax rate is 35%, but then when corporations pay dividends, which is the only way people who own corporations could get their money out, right? Even if you're self-employed and you incorporate, if you uh, have a profit and you pay a 35% tax and then you distribute the profit to yourself, you're going to pay another 20% dividend tax uh, on that. So the true rate is the, the 35 plus, uh, plus the 20. And so they may be able to reduce the corporate rate and kind of make it so it's the same as if you have a corporation and pay yourself a dividend versus, you know, running a pass-through like an LLC. Now, of course, if you own, if you're a passive investor in a corporation, right, you don't, it's not your own business, then not only do you pay the 20% tax on the dividend, you pay that 3.8% Obamacare tax. So it's closer to 24%. So they might be able to find a way to just reduce the corporate tax because of the double taxation and say, okay, this is a a benefit for business without reducing taxes on, you know, the self-employed. Although, of course, if they reduce taxes for the middle class and you're running a business and, you you know, let's say you earn $150,000 a year running a small business, then you would get that tax cut if it was targeted at the middle class, assuming the middle class was defined as, you know, incomes below one hundred fifty or 200000 or something like that. A lot of small businessmen, people that own, you know, uh, you know, drugstores or, you know, a, rest, a restaurant or something that, that, that earn money in there, they would still benefit as a, a small business owner. And of course, they can also do the, um, the corporate tax holiday. They can allow repatriation because this is money that wasn't being taxed at all. And now they can slap some tax on that. But this would just be a tax cut, right? This, is not, this would not be major tax reform. But of course, it would also blow a hole in the, in the deficit. Now, one way they get around that is by making it temporary, right? They just say, well, if it's just going to sunset in 10 years, then we don't have to worry about 
paying for the tax cut. We can just make the deficit bigger as long as it's only for 10 years. And this whole thing is ridiculous because you hear a lot of conservatives say, well, you know, if it's a temporary tax cut, it's not going to be as stimulative because people will know it's temporary. And so they're not going to make uh, long term plans for a temporary tax cut. I mean, come on, give me a break. I mean, nothing is permanent. Let's assume they actually passed a permanent tax hike or tax cut. There's nothing that stops Congress from raising taxes in two years or four years or six years. I mean, nothing is permanent. They can raise taxes whenever they want. The only thing is, is in order to raise taxes, the tax hike is going to have to come from the House of Representatives. So in theory, as long as the House of Representatives is controlled by Republicans, you would think that they wouldn't want to originate a, a tax hike in a Republican House. But the Republicans may not control the House, uh, you know, in a couple of years or in four years. So no tax cut is permanent. And of course, even the temporary tax cut isn't guaranteed to last the full 10 years. Right. And of course, they could renew it at the 10 year period. So, I mean, there really is no difference between a temporary tax cut and a permanent tax cut because nothing is permanent when it comes to cutting taxes. You know, interestingly, the reason that the founding fathers uh, wrote into the Constitution that revenue bills much originate in the House was because the House was the body that was responsive to the people because the Senate wasn't even elected. The Senate was appointed. Uh, senators were appointed by state legislatures and they served six-year terms. So the, the, the House, though, was elected every two years by the people. And so they didn't want the Senate you know, starting a tax hike because these guys were more insulated from the public. They knew that the one thing the public disliked the most was taxes because they'd have to pay it. So they thought, let's make the people least likely to raise taxes have to be responsible for instigating it. Because after all, if you're in the House and you say you want to have higher taxes, well, you're up for reelection in two years by the very people that were paying those higher taxes. So the founding fathers, in their wisdom, wanted to make it more difficult for taxes to be raised. And that's why they did it in the way that they did. And of course, another thing, and I mentioned how if they, if the government lowers the corporate tax rate, you know, to try to uh, minimize the, the double taxation, of course, if they, if they do it too low, right, if they lower the corporate tax too low, what's going to happen is a lot of Americans who are not corporations now, who are small businessmen, will just incorporate, right? They will restructure the way they run their business in order to minimize their taxes. And that's one of the things that politicians often overlook when they're trying to tax us, is that people will alter their behavior as a direct result of the tax. Because the natural inclination for everybody is to pay the lowest tax possible. I mean, that's why, you know, when Donald Trump was running for president and they're all making a big deal that he's using deductions to minimize his taxes. Of course, he's using deductions to minimize his taxes. He would be an idiot if he didn't utilize deductions to minimize his taxes. I mean, everybody tries to minimize their expenses, particularly taxes, because we get nothing for our money. I mean, when people shop around for a product, right? They always shop for the lowest price, but then they also look at quality because you realize that as price goes down, so might quality. So there you have two factors, right? You're trying to get a good price, but you don't want to you know, give up too much on quality. So you're trying to get the best value for your money. But when it comes to paying taxes, there is no value. There is nothing that you get 
from the government, right? I'm not going to get better service from the government if I pay higher taxes. I'm going to get the exact same government service regardless of what I pay in taxes. So you don't have the trade-off between cost and quality. When it comes to government taxes, it's just cost. You want to minimize your taxes. You don't care about anything else, right? Because you're not going to get better fire protection, better police protection. The military isn't going to protect me more if I pay higher taxes. So the only thing that you have is to minimize your tax. So everybody tries to do that. Everybody will alter their behavior in order to minimize taxes. And, you know, that is the reason, the main reason that when the founding fathers established the Constitution and they wrote two types of taxes, there are direct taxes and there are indirect taxes. And, you know, the Constitution refers, uh, I think, to direct taxes actually three times. I think it's the only thing that the Constitution mentions three times. So they make a big distinction between indirect taxes and direct taxes. Indirect taxes are taxes that you pay indirectly based on the things that you buy, like a sales tax is an indirect tax or a, an import tax. If the government puts a tax on a consumer product, right, they're not taxing me. They're taxing me based on the things that I buy. A direct tax, on the other hand, is when you send the money directly to the government, like an income tax would be a direct tax, right? I have income. I got to pay the tax. A property tax is a direct tax. They're taxing me based on the fact that I own property. So if I own property, I just got to send a check to the government. The difference between an excise tax and a direct tax is you can avoid the excise tax. You just don't buy the product that's being taxed, and now you've avoided it. And so the founding fathers looked at excise taxes as being self-correcting as to abuse because there was a natural limit to how high government can raise an excise tax because at some point the higher tax would actually produce less revenue. But direct taxes were inherently more abusive because you can't really avoid it. I mean, if the government decides to put a direct tax on property, right, whatever it is, if you own property, you're stuck paying the tax. You can't avoid it. Now, you can try to sell the property to avoid the tax, but now whoever buys it is going to inherit that tax liability, which means the value of that tax is going to come out of your property because the obligation to pay a property tax directly diminishes the value of that property because it produces that negative cash flow, which reduces the value. So you can't avoid a direct tax. I mean, an income tax also. I mean, you can avoid it in a way because you don't have to work as much. You don't have to earn as much money. But I mean, there's a certain amount of money you have to earn. You have to go out there and you have to feed your family. You have to pay the rent. There's things you have to buy. And so you have to work and therefore you're going to have to pay the tax if it applies to you. So like an example, let's assume on an excise tax, the government looks at people that are going to the movies, right? A lot of people go to the movie theater every year. And let's say the government says, hey, let's tax this, right? Look at all these people going out to the movies. Let's just tax everybody $5 every time they go to the movies, right? Let's just put a five. And now the government says, well, how many people go to the movies? And let's multiply by five. And then that's how much money we're going to collect. See, it doesn't work that way. Let's say a movie ticket costs $10 to buy. And all of a sudden, if you tack on a $5 tax, now it's $15. Well, you know, most people don't go to the movies by themselves, right? A guy goes, he brings a date or, you know, a family goes, you got two or three kids, a husband and wife, you know, you multiply that out. That's a lot of money. There are a lot of people that if movie tickets went from $10 to $15, they would just stay home. They would never go out to the movies or they might go out once in a while on a special occasion, but they wouldn't go out as often. And so the government wouldn't get anywhere near as much tax revenue because all of a sudden the imposition of the tax 
caused people to behave differently in that they decided not to go to the movies because they didn't want to pay the tax. Now, of course, there's still going to be some people that are rich enough that they don't care whether it's $15 you know, or $10. They'll still go to the movies, right? They don't care. But the problem is there's not that many people like that. That's probably a small part of the theater-going public. And in fact, if enough people stop going to the movies because they didn't want to pay $15, then some theaters would go out of business, in which case the government would get no revenue at all from those theaters because even the people who would be willing to pay $15 to go to the movies, they're not going either because the theater is shut down, right? But you know, let's say they decided to put a 10-cent tax on tickets. All right, so if, if a ticket went from $10 to $10.10, you know, maybe a couple of people wouldn't go. But in general, most people, hey, you know, you'd have paid $10, you'd pay $10.10. So in that respect, probably a 10 cent per ticket tax would probably raise even more revenue than a $5 tax. See, this is what the founding fathers knew, and that's why they wanted the government to run on excise taxes. I mean, the only reason that they're allowed to have direct taxes, and if you go back and look at the drafts of the Constitution, the earlier drafts, the government only had the ability to have indirect taxes. It didn't even have the power to lay a direct tax. And the reason that they changed the Constitution in later drafts to include this power was in case of a war. The founding fathers were worried, hey, what if the gov- what if there's a war and the government needs revenue? We don't want people avoiding the tax be- you know, because the government needs the money. It's a war. Right? This is in dire circumstances. So they put in the mechanism for a direct tax, but they limited it. They said direct taxes have to be apportioned according to the population, which is a very difficult thing to do. So they figured, okay, they'd be willing to do this in in times of a war, right? They'd be willing to do this really difficult thing to levy this wartime tax in an emergency. But during peacetime, right, the founding fathers expected the federal government to exist entirely on on excise taxes. And, And it did for a long time. You know, we didn't even have the income tax until 1913. But, you know, I don't want to you know, get into a whole long history of the income tax. I mean, one way, if you want to read a lot about the income tax, I wish I still had copies of my dad's book, The Great Income Tax Hoax. But I don't have any more of those. We ran out. But I still have copies of The Federal Mafia. Remember, that is the only book other than, uh, what was it, that uh, pornographic book that the federal government has ever banned. Uh, But we still have copies of the banned book. There's not that many left, by the way. So soon we'll probably run out of those too. But you can go to shiftbooks.com and get a copy of the Federal Mafia, because my father has a lot of the history of the income tax and and why we have it, and a lot more than I've just gone into in this discussion. But it's very fascinating reading just to learn about taxation and and what the founding fathers envisioned for this country and how far uh, from those constitutional principles we we have really moved. But getting back to these Trump tax cuts, so I think that we're going to end up with a temporary tax cut because all tax cuts are temporary anyway, especially when you have as much debt as we do. And so that is going to be something that the Republicans will be able to come through with. And they can target it at the middle class. They can certainly do that. But, you know, here's the problem. When Reagan had these tax cuts, and of course Trump is now saying that his cuts are going to be even bigger than Reagan's, and maybe maybe that's going to be true for the middle class. I don't know, because certainly if you just wanted to add it as a dollar value, right, not as a percentage of GDP— But obviously, the numbers are a lot bigger. We've had a lot of inflation since uh, 1981. And if he targets a tax cut at the middle class, the sheer dollar value of the cuts could be bigger uh, than the the dollar value under Reagan. But remember, the Reagan tax cuts 
The result of that, the budget deficit tripled under Reagan. I think when Reagan was first elected, I think Jimmy Carter's last budget deficit was around $70 billion. And of course, remember, when Ronald Reagan ran, he was very critical of that $70 billion number. That was too high. He ran on a platform of reducing the deficit. But I think by the end of his first term, the deficits had risen to like $220 billion. So the deficits tripled under Ronald Reagan. Now, of course, it wasn't all because of the tax cuts. It was because the government spending wasn't cut. We kept getting more and more spending. And so that was driving the deficits. And also we had a recession. We had a very deep recession early in the, uh, uh, the, the Reagan term. And of course, that recession helped to drive the deficits higher. So assuming you have a similar fact pattern here, we have a recession in the first term of Trump, which is very likely because we may already be in a recession and we get tax cuts and we don't get any spending cuts because we're not right. Expending is going to continue to increase on autopilot. If we tripled the deficits under Trump, I mean, you know, we would be well north of $2 trillion a year in deficits. There is absolutely no way that we can absorb those kind of deficits without massive inflation, without massive money printing, massive QE4. That's what's going to be huge. You want to talk about the huge tax cuts. How about the huge inflation that's going to result from the huge quantitative easing program that the Fed is going to have to launch to make these so-called tax uh, cuts uh, uh, financeable? But of course, what the government giveth, they taketh away. So they're going to cut your taxes, but then they're going to increase your cost of living. Yes, you're going to have more money in your paycheck because you're not going to pay as much taxes, but your paycheck's not going to go as far because everything you're going to want to buy is going to be that much more expensive because of all the inflation that had to be created to make those tax cuts possible. Because there is no such thing as a free lunch. We are broke. The only real way to cut taxes is to massively cut government spending. But nobody is talking about the biggest government spending cuts ever. It's just the biggest tax cut ever because that's good politics. But the problem is Trump doesn't need to be to be a politician. He already is president. But the problem, of course, is a lot of the congressmen who are going to be up for reelection in two years. And that's all they care about is getting reelected for them. It's all about politics. And what it would have been good is if Trump was able to get everybody in that swamp to rise above politics and to actually do something that's good for the country, even if it puts their political future in jeopardy. But unfortunately, that's not what's going on. This is business as usual. In fact, Donald Trump now is getting a lot of play, praise, even from people from the left, because he's rejecting a lot of the things that he campaigned on, that now he's acting more presidential. I don't want somebody to act presidential. That's why the country is in a mess, because all these presidents have been so presidential. I want a president who cares about his country, right? Who cares about being presidential? Let's do the right thing. Let's roll back all this government regulation, all these taxes. Let's level with the American people and let's tell them the truth instead of just being presidential. Now, I want to segue for the second half of this, uh, this podcast away from the government and to the private sector and use the airlines as an example, because, you know, there's a lot of uh, media attention now regarding the airline industry, particularly in the aftermath of the United uh, Airlines fiasco. And of course, everybody has heard about this by now. In fact, I think that YouTube video, and at least this is probably a week ago, I read that over 500 million people in China had already viewed this YouTube clip, clip of this elderly Chinese doctor 
being dragged uh, out of his seat uh, by security because he didn't want to voluntarily give up a ticket that he had paid for. And he was, in fact, already in his seat. It wasn't like, you know, it was before they boarded. He already boarded. He's sitting in his seat. Of course, everybody knows this. And, and, and they drag him out. And in the process, they, they crash, they smash his head into an armrest. He loses a couple of teeth. You know, he has a concussion. He's bleeding. I mean, people are horrified. And of course, somebody is filming it. Somebody, you know, I mean, don't they know that? I mean, don't these guys realize that everything they do is going to be filmed by somebody? And, you know, this is not an example of why the free market doesn't work. And this does not need a government solution. This is going to be a perfect example of why the free market works beautifully. You know, Warren Buffett, one of his famous quotes is that it takes a lifetime to build a reputation and five minutes to blow it. Well, in the case of United Airlines, it wasn't even five minutes. I don't think that YouTube video was even two minutes long, right? the, the original one. And this is a public relations disaster uh, for United. And the market will exact a penalty on United. And the industry is already changing. Of course, you're going to see uh, some politicians or people saying, oh, the politicians need to come in and do something. They don't have to come in and do anything. The market is going to sort all of this out. You know, first of all, I fly all the time. And I fly a lot of airlines. I fly United a lot. I fly Delta. I, I fly American. And I never even knew that the airlines could force you to give up your seat. I didn't even know this. Apparently, they're saying it's in the contract. Well, well who reads that? Right? I mean, I didn't even do it. I mean, it's like the terms and conditions on a website. How many people, when you go to a website and they have all these terms and conditions and you have to check that you accept the terms and conditions, how many people actually read the terms and conditions? I mean, they're so long and the print is so small. You just check it. You, know, I mean, you, might, you, you could be giving away your firstborn. Right? Who knows what's in those terms and conditions? But the same thing, I, I've never even read a contract. Uh, I buy tickets I, all the time. I've never read a contract. So I would not have known that they can force me. I always was under the impression that if they overbooked the plane, that they needed to ask for volunteers and they would pay people to give up their seat. And I see people giving up their seats all the time uh, for money. And that's fine. And, you know, Overbooking, there is nothing wrong with an airline overbooking because the reason they overbook is because they know statistically from all their computer models that there are people who aren't going to show up. And, and so the more people they can put in those planes, the cheaper they can make the tickets. So by overselling and overbooking, people benefit because the people who end up flying end up with a lower cost because the airline was able to overbook. Now, once in a while, they get stuck because the people who we're not supposed to show, show up, and then they're in trouble. So what do they do? Now they offer people, hey, I'll give you a travel voucher, you know, $200, $300, $400, and they usually auction it off. And if there are no takers, you know, they go to a higher amount. If there's no takers, I've never been on a plane where they couldn't find somebody to give up their seat. And I didn't realize that United had a limit. Apparently the limit was $800 or something, and nobody took the 800 bucks. So they forced people off the plane. And I think when they forced you off, I, it was they had to give you 1200 bucks if they forced you off. But, you know, they, this guy didn't want to leave. And, of course, they dragged him off the plane. And I, the first time I heard about it, I was like, why didn't they offer, offer more money? I mean, that is the obvious thing to do. And, of course, that is what they're going to do. I don't know. I mean, it took this kind of an incident uh, for this to come out. But, of course, a couple days later, I think it was Delta or American came out and said, OK, now we're going to go up to $10,000. Problem solved, right? The government doesn't have to do anything. We don't need any government regulation. If airlines 
will go up to $10,000. Believe me, most of the people will get off the flight for $10,000. There are very few people that, you know, really have to travel and have to be there at a specific time. I mean, sometimes, like, I'm traveling a lot. I'm going to an event where I'm speaking at a, and, I, and I'm speaking at a particular time. And so I, I can't, I can't take the travel voucher. I got to be there on, at the time that I have to be there. And if there's no other flights, I'm stuck, right? I got to go. But, you know, if you're a kid, if you're going on a, you know, vacation, and it, it doesn't really matter if you get there a little later in the day, right? So a lot of people will voluntarily leave. It depends on how valuable it is. But this guy was a doctor and he actually had an appointment. I mean, this guy had to be there. He didn't want to get off that flight. And it was, I think it was wrong for United to try to force him, even if there was a contract. Who the hell read that contract? So it was terrible behavior. But United is going to pay because this guy is going to sue. And he's probably going to get a big settlement because there's no way United wants a trial and all the publicity that's going to surround the trial. That's going to extend the PR problem. So they're going to pay the guy off. But the airlines are already responding to the publicity by making changes. And this is all the way the free market works. We don't need government. In fact, you know, if the government wants to do something to improve air travel, how about starting with the TSA? That's where they can make a big difference in so that it's not so difficult to, uh, to check your baggage and to go through security, you know, and you don't have to get to the airport hours in advance because the lines are so long. I mean, that is the problem. The biggest problem is with air travel is government. It's not the airlines. I mean, the airlines obviously are a service business and, you know, they have to answer to the public. You know, of course, I read an article this morning where the airlines are getting more publicity because they are coming up with even cheaper seats, right, where you can't check any baggage, you can't carry on any baggage, rather, because, you know, sometimes the overheads are full. So they're saying, okay, if you don't have any carry-ons, you know, you'll have a lower price, and if you don't have an assigned seat, because sometimes, you know, nobody likes the middle seats, right? A lot of times I book two seats on a plane. I book the window in the aisle and I leave the middle seat open because I realize that chances are there's not even going to be anybody in the middle seat. So we end up with a whole row, right? And, and so, but what they want to do is let's say they have a people and they can stick people in the middle seat at the end, right? You know, you're not, you know, and so maybe even people, a couple, if they buy cheap seats, they won't even be sitting next to each other. They're just going to be stuck in, in the middle here and there. And, you know, of course, the airlines are also trying to find ways to make their first class travel better, you know, more comfortable uh, chairs, they recline more, better meals, right? And so the media plays this as, ah, you see, you know, the little guy is getting screwed and, you know, the airlines are just, you know, catering to the haves and they don't care about the have-nots as if this is a problem. And this is not a problem. This is the airlines trying to appeal to customers and deliver the best value possible. And so they're trying to discriminate among their ticket buyers, right? Because there's certain people in the market who all they care about is the cheapest way to get from point A to point B. They don't care. They don't care if they have to suffer through a, a bad flight, if they have to be in a small seat for a few hours, if they don't get a meal, if they can't carry on. They just want a cheap flight, Right. I mean, I remember the first time I went to uh, to Europe myself, you know, and I flew from California. I was actually in my 20s. I didn't you know, I never even went to Europe until I was in my 20s. And um, so I went, you know, I had a backpack. I didn't even have luggage. I had a backpack and I just found the cheapest flight I can find that went from Los Angeles to Amsterdam to get me to Europe. 
And it was I was miserable on that flight. I mean, I, I could barely sleep. I was in coach. But you know what? I was willing to do that because I spent four months in Europe. So I didn't give a damn if I had to suffer through, you know, a long flight because all I cared about was I wanted extra money for my trip. I'd rather have the money because I had a limited amount of money. I was a young kid. I, I would rather have it for hotels and entertainment and things that I wanted to do in Europe. I didn't care, you know, how crappy the seat was. And so what the airlines are doing is there are some people that want a, a pleasant experience. Like to me now, see, 54-year-old Peter Schiff is a lot different than 22-year-old Peter Schiff. There's no way. You couldn't pay me at this point in my life to take a coach uh, flight to Europe. There's no way I would do it. I, and and I, so I'm going to pay the money because I have the money at this point. So if I have to pay an extra $5,000 for my ticket, it's not going to diminish my travel experience. I'm still going to be able to stay in the hotels I want to. I'm going to go to the attractions. I don't want to at this point in my life. I don't want to sit in a coach seat. The airline knows this. There are people like me that are willing to pay more. And you know what? Because there are people who are willing to pay more, the airline can actually charge the people who really want to pay less, even less. It's like the airlines make almost all their money now off the first class traveler, right? They, they, you know, so the first class traveler and the extra profit margin that they have, because these first class seats are very expensive compared to coach. I mean, you could be traveling in coach and you could pay, let's say, $200 for a ticket. And the guy that's in first class might have paid $1,500 for the ticket. I mean, he's still getting the exact same point is you. And if you figure, what is the actual value of the food? I mean, the airline food, believe me, it's not that great, right? I mean, you know, so it's just a, a more comfortable chair. You know, you you know, you get on first, your luggage comes out first, but at the end of the day, the, the value really isn't there, right? To go first class. I mean, for what you get, you just have to have enough money that you don't care, right? And, you know, and, and so, and those people, a lot of them are business travelers too, because they're deducting the cost, right? So if you're traveling on business, it's a tax deduction. So it doesn't cost you $1,500. It costs you $750. So the, the businessman only actually actually pay half the cost. But if you're uh, you know, just a regular guy traveling on vacation, you don't get to deduct the cost of your vacation. That's just you know, after-tax money. So they don't have the spending power. So none of this is a bad thing. This is all a good thing. This is all about the free market trying to satisfy the consumer, right? Hey, if the consumer wants more frills, he can pay for them. But if he doesn't, if he just wants the cheapest ticket, this is the way the airlines can do it, right? They, they find ways to make the premium service good enough that they can overcharge people who are willing to pay higher prices, and that's going to subsidize the guy who just wants the cheap seat. It's not the airline being mean. It's the airline being good because the airline is trying to deliver to the consumer what the consumer wants. And of course, you know, politicians, though, can always say, oh, this is terrible. You know, the airline experience, I mean, you're stuck, right? You're like cattle. And, you know, they can try to promise, you know, to fix it with regulation and say, oh, you know, you can't charge more for this or you can't do that or you can't do that. None of this works because you know what? At one point in time, the airline industry was completely regulated by the government, right? They fixed all the prices. And hardly anybody can afford to fly. I mean, it was only the rich who used to fly when the government was in control. And in fact, back then, they had no uh, competition. The prices were so high, the way they would compete, you know, they had these big lounges like in these 747s, you know, 
Uh, you know, they had the upstairs lounge. They, they only can compete on service because they, could, they weren't even allowed uh, to compete on price. But, you know, air travel used to be the province of the rich. I mean, the middle class couldn't afford to get on an airplane because the prices were so damn high when the government was there protecting the consumer. It wasn't until we had all the deregulation uh, that we really start to see uh, prices coming down in a free market and a lot of people flying. And, of course, now that a lot of people are flying, a lot of them, they gripe about the service. And now they're, you know, they're prone for politicians to, to play into that by promising something. But whenever the government promises to make your life better, it is always going to backfire. Anything the government does to try to placate the flying public because they feel they're getting screwed or they're getting ripped off and the government's here to protect them, all that's going to happen is you're going to end up paying higher prices and you're going to end up flying less. And of course, you know, one of the reasons, too, that so many people you know, have to fly as cheaply as they possibly can is because they're broke, right? I mean, where the government is really screwing the air traveler is his income taxes or the payroll taxes that he's paying or that his employer is paying. It's everything that the government does to diminish your income. So if the government really wants to make it better for people who fly on airplanes, start by lowering their income taxes, right? Start by getting rid of a lot of the taxes that are diminishing uh, their paychecks. And of course, that's not going to be done unless we have significant cuts to government spending. You know, the government likes to make a big deal about going after the private sector, you know, because they think they're ripping you off. Like, oh, the cable company is charging too much, right? Oh, let's bring the rates down by a few bucks, right? Or, you know, or your bank is charging you too much, right? They're charging, the ATM fees are too high, right? This is all nickel and dime stuff. Who cares about the ATM fees? Who cares about a cable uh, cost? Because the free market's going to take care of that. You don't like cable? Use Netflix, right? You know, I mean, there's all sorts of ways the free market can save you. See, when a businessman is overcharging you, you have relief because some other businessman will give you a better alternative. That's competition. That's the free market. It's the government where you have no escape. The government decides to tax you and you're stuck paying those taxes, right? If the government is a monopolist and the government takes over an industry and they're the only provider of a service, the service is going to stink and the cost is going to be very high, right? You know, that's what happens with, you know, the public schools or that's what happens with the post office, right? Or when the government, you know, they take, take over the taxi cabs. That's why Uber is being so successful because they're getting around a lot of these government uh, monopolies, government barriers to, uh, to business. So the government makes a big deal about how they want to save us a couple of bucks here on our cable bill. But meanwhile, they're clobbering us for big bucks, right? Not pennies and nickels, but dollars and hundreds and thousands of dollars when it comes to the amount of money they tax. So that's really where the reforms need to be. For, leave the free market alone and let's shrink the size of government. But again, we can't do that. We can't deliver this massive, biggest ever tax cut in reality and actually ease the burden on the middle class unless we dramatically shrink the cost of government because that is the responsibility that the middle class has been saddled with. So if you're fed up with paying taxes, if you think you're overtaxed and you are, it's because the government is spending too much money. And the only real way to get relief is to dramatically cut government spending, but no one wants to do that because all the people who benefit from government spending vote, and none of the politicians are willing to lose their votes to really ease the burden of everybody else.
Today's financial advisors behave like pro-wrestling TV commentators. They scream that the recovery is strong, debt is manageable, inflation is low, and that the Federal Reserve has everything under control. They may be oblivious, but the danger is real. Looking beyond the media hype can open a world of broader investing ideas. Euro-Pacific Capital is a registered investment advisor that offers stock-focused wealth management services that closely follow the strategy of our founder and CEO, Peter Schiff. We concentrate on those countries that are more closely in tune with Peter's vision of how capitalism is supposed to work. And these investments are not hard to find, provided you know where to look. Isn't it time you change the channel and let Euro-Pacific put a little reality back into your portfolio? If you live in the United States and have $25,000 or more to invest, call 800-727-7922. That's 800-727-7922. Non-U.S. residents access similar strategies through Euro-Pacific Bank at europacbank.com. Euro-Pacific Capital and Euro-Pacific Bank are affiliated companies. Hello, this is Peter Schiff. I bet you didn't know that without silver, you wouldn't be hearing this podcast right now or be able to use a computer at all. From laptops to smartphones to TVs to speakers, virtually all modern electronics use silver to conduct electricity. Did you know that the average solar panel uses two-thirds of an ounce of silver to function? And the solar industry is expanding dramatically, not just in America, but in booming developing nations like China and India. Silver is naturally antibacterial and is used extensively in modern medicine. Silver coatings are being added to breathing tubes, bandages, catheters, and other medical instruments to reduce the spread of infections. When antibiotics fail, silver still works. I believe the 21st century will be the century of silver. As fiat currencies continue to collapse and new uses are found for silver every day, the white metal's strong industrial demand and low per ounce price will make it increasingly attractive to savers around the world. At today's prices, people of any age and background can afford to buy some silver. Learn why silver is a smart and reliable investment in my free special report, The Powerful Case for Silver. Visit shiftsilver.com and download it now. The Powerful Case for Silver includes information about silver's amazing chemical properties. It also explains why I believe silver may outperform gold in the coming years. Download The Powerful Case for Silver and educate yourself, your friends, and your family about the white metal. Just visit shiftsilver.com to download my free report. That's shiftsilver.com.